work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription well hello everybody my name is mick sullivan and this is the past and the curious and i'm so grateful that you are listening um if you're a regular listener it's been a little bit longer in between episodes and i apologize for that summertime is super super busy in my life um with work not with like summertime fun um and i have some small kids so that's a thing but i'm glad to be here and i'm glad to welcome my friend jason lawrence who uh, is a regular you've heard his voice on here before from up in brooklyn um he's gonna tell the story of isabella stewart gardner and her museum that is named after you know her uh I am going to tell you the story of Charles Wilson Peel, which will connect a little bit to the Prairie Dog story from last episode, if you listened. Before we get started, I just have to mention again, you remember that I wrote a book? Yeah, I did. And it's like pretty great. Everything's going really well with it. Uh, Hope you got a copy. If you didn't, get a copy of it. Uh, You can go to earlyworkspress.com or other places, but earlyworkspress.com slash shop is the best way to do it. Oh, we got to start. Going to see the symphony orchestra perform can be a very proper affair. You take a shower, comb your hair, probably douse yourself in some good-smelling perfume or cologne, dress in your nicest clothes, and prepare for an invigorating evening of culture among your city's most dignified people. Well, at least that's the way it used to be. Luckily, many of today's arts companies, like orchestras, ballets, and operas, are working to appeal to more people and hope to be accessible to everyone. So there's no real need for a tuxedo and top hat these days. But in 1912, a concert could be a pretty stodgy event. And in Boston, home to the world-famous Boston Symphony Orchestra, it was even more so. No one dared to make a scene at one of the group's performances. That was just not something polite society expected. But most people were not like Isabella Stewart Gardner, and she never really bothered to do what was expected of her. It might seem strange and a bit tame by our standards, but it was practically a scandal when she showed up for a symphony orchestra performance after the 1912 World Series. I mean, how can you blame her? The Boston Red Sox had just beaten the New York Giants for the championship. She loved the Red Sox. There's some nonsense belief that sports and the arts can't mix, but Isabella never got that memo. The bold woman took her seat wearing a striking white headband emblazoned with the words, Oh, you Red Sox! and people in the audience darn near lost their minds. There are other stories of her incredible eccentricities. She was well known, so stories would spread like wildfire, such as the one of her walking lions down the streets of Boston on leashes. But according to what we could find, if this did actually happen, it probably happened within the walls of the zoo. That's much safer. Still, it gives you not just an idea of her personality, but also people's curiosity about her uninhibited nature. Isabella came from wealth. Her parents were well-to-do in New York, 
and as a young woman, she traveled around the world and even attended school in Europe. While there, she began to fall in love with the many masterpieces of art that seemed to be on every wall in every museum throughout the continent. Upon returning as a young woman to America, she settled in Boston and fell in love again, this time with a man named Jack. Jack was also rich, so they were pretty set when it came to meeting their needs. But money doesn't take care of everything. The couple had a son whom they adored, but while still young, the son was lost to pneumonia. Isabella was thrown into a deep depression. She was despondent and withdrew from her friends. People worried for her, and her doctor believed that getting away from home would help her. She never got over the loss of her only son, and actually had to be carried on a stretcher to board the steamer ship bound across the sea. But not long after getting off the boat, she put her feet back on the ground and was able to see the beauty of the world once again. She saw it in people and places, but it was also in the paintings and sculptures she saw hanging on nearly every wall in Europe. It was probably around this time that she started hatching a plan to bring some of these paintings to American shores where she could hang them on walls for the American public to enjoy. If anyone could afford it, it was Isabella and Jack. Slowly, they bought art. And we're not talking about junk shop art or stuff from a Sears catalog either. She got the good stuff. Along with works by Vermeer, Degas, Whistler, Manet, and Rembrandt, they also collected Egyptian, Roman, and ancient Chinese art. The collection would eventually total in the thousands, thousands of pieces of art. If you have that much, you're going to need a museum to put it in. When her husband Jack passed away, she focused entirely on opening this museum, buying land in Boston and hiring an architect to build an incredible building to house the collection. It was to be art for all of the senses. She hung her great works on walls that she had planned to be illuminated by the shifting sunlights from the days. In the middle of the building was a courtyard, and far above that was a glass ceiling, allowing the incredible fragrant plants inside to always be in bloom, despite whatever the harsh Boston winters might bring. And she wanted to have musicians filling it with sound as often as she could. She planned every aspect of the museum, which probably irked the architect she had hired to do just that. There are even reports of Isabella grabbing a brush and climbing ladders to paint the walls right alongside the contractors. She wanted to be a part of everything and wanted to make sure the public saw the museum she saw so clearly in her mind. On New Year's Day of 1903, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum first opened for a private event. She brought the Boston Symphony Orchestra in to perform for the Haughty Toddy Affair. And despite the black ties and formal gowns, Isabella's event was not without her unusual and individual flourishes. Those fancy dress society people were probably expecting a menu of escargot, rich sumptuous meats, and expertly prepared vegetables. Isabella served her favorite, donuts. A few months later, the place was ready to open to the public. Art from ancient Egypt to 19th century France was arranged from floor to ceiling on the walls of three stories. The fourth floor was reserved for Isabella, and there she lived, right above the museum, until her death in 1924. Of course, it was her wish to have the museum live on long after her, and she was certain to leave enough money to help it continue its life. It was her wish to share the museum not just with her public, but the public of the future, long after she'd gone. But she was very particular about things. When you build a museum from the ground up, you have a right to be. Her paintings were hung just so, and she wished for them not to move. Not even an inch. Her wish was so strong that she put that in the rules. No one could move any of the paintings. Everything had to remain as it was on the day she died. 
The wall space for her prized Rembrandt painting Storm on the Sea of Galilee could only and would only house that incredible and incredibly rare painting. Likewise, the wall on which her valuable Vermeer lived would remain its home forevermore. At least, that's what she put in the rules. But there was one thing she was not expecting to happen. If you're in Boston and walk into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, you'll find something surprising. Something you won't find in other art museums. Empty frames. The paintings are gone. And up there, just hanging on the wall, are the big, sad, lonely, empty frames. Where do the paintings go? Well, the management of the museum would very much like to know. In fact, they've offered millions of dollars for that information. 65 years after Isabella made her no touching the paintings at all, no ifs, ands, or buts rule, and then died, some people came along who didn't care about her rules, or any other rules for that matter. It was the day after St. Patrick's Day in 1990 when two men disguised as police weaseled their way into the closed museum and spent 81 minutes pulling off the most expensive art heist in history. Thirteen paintings disappeared that day, as did some ancient artifacts and a golden eagle flag topper called a finial, which had belonged to Napoleon. Those spectacular Rembrandt and Vermeer paintings, which had such particular spots on Isabelle's walls, were unceremoniously cut from their frames, rolled up and taken away before anyone could stop the criminals. Most people agree that the stolen collection is worth $500 million. With that kind of money, you could buy an entire NBA basketball team. Or you could bring home 500 million donuts, or 250 million donuts and 250 million hot dogs, you know, to balance things out. Heck, you could probably build an Iron Man suit, or do something helpful, like fund schools. But it's your money. Do what you want. Anyway, you're probably wondering where these paintings wound up. Well, dudes, we just don't know. Hopefully they're safe. Many heist experts believe that if crimes like this are not solved immediately, then the art is often recovered sometime a generation later. It's hard to sell stolen art, because everyone knows it's stolen, so usually the guilty people have to pass on. Then someone who won't get in so much trouble can say where it is. So you, young listeners, are likely to be around when the case breaks and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum gets back their missing artwork. As for the frames, well, Isabella's rules state that nothing else can go there, so there they hang, looking all sad and empty. There's actually plenty of amazing stuff to see at the museum, and we recommend a visit. But when you know the story, the empty frames are pretty cool to see, too. By the way, this wasn't the only funny rule Isabella made. If your name is also Isabella, you'll never have to pay to visit the museum. All Isabellas are free. If you're like me and your name is not Isabella, she was looking out for you, too. Ever the baseball fan, Isabella insisted that the museum offer a discount for anyone wearing Boston Red Sox apparel. But since I'm from New York, I'd rather just pay full price, thanks. It's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and this month, it's my buddy Dylan. Take it away, man. My name is Dylan, and I am from Louisville, Kentucky, and my hero is Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente is my hero because he was a great baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates and won four batting titles and 12 gold gloves. He was the first Latin American baseball player to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. In the offseason, he did lots of charity. He tragically died in a plane crash delivering supplies to earthquake victims in Nicaragua. 
thanks, Dylan. Great to hear from you. If you have a You Have 30 Seconds submission, all you have to do is get with your parents, record it on a phone, and you can email it directly to me. There is information on our website, thepastandthecurious.com. Keep them coming, y'all. We've got a bunch, but we want more. Send them, send them, send them. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Hey, everybody. It's quiz time once again, and it's museum quizzes today. The Florence History of Science Museum displays important and old telescopes and other scientific equipment, yes, but it does also have one body part which belonged to an important man of science. Think you can point to the right answer? Haha, <laughs> it's not actually a pointer, it's a middle finger. Don't point with that. And it used to belong to none other than Galileo. The finger was taken from his skeleton in 1737, 95 years after he died. Now it is displayed in an ornate glass and gold egg, so visitors can gaze upon it and imagine the astronomer stroking his chin deep in thought. Or, more likely, gaze upon it and be slightly repulsed. Question number two. The Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. is a group of museums that holds an enormous amount of objects in their collection, from Dorothy's ruby red slippers to Harriet Tubman's shawl. In fact, they have somewhere between 137 and 150 million objects. But they can't display nearly all of that. Can you guess how much of their collection is actually on display at any time? 1%! It's only 1%! Think of the treasures hiding in that collection. By the way, the Smithsonian was founded by a gift from a British man named James Smithson who never even set foot in the United States. Question number three. Which of these weird museums is not a real museum? The Museum of Mustard, the Toilet Seat Art Museum, the Toilet Museum, the Potato Museum, the Banana Museum, the Ramen Noodle Museum, or the Ventriloquist Museum? Haha! <laughs> Trick question, they're all real museums. Crazy, but true. In fact, in America alone, there are more museums than Starbucks and McDonald's stores combined. People like museums. I mean, I sure do. I work in one. And it's nice to know that there are over 850 million visits to museums in America every year. Independence Hall in Philadelphia is a pretty famous building. You might be able to picture it in your mind. It's a red brick building standing in an opening of the hollowed ground of the old city center in Philly. The bell tower and its steeple are its most recognizable features. And of course, inside is where George Washington was chosen as commander in chief of the Continental Army. Oh, and where on July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress approved the Declaration of Independence. So it's a building that has seen some history, to say the least. But while all of that action happened within its red brick walls in the 1770s, few people know that just 25 years later, the building was also home to the first prehistoric skeleton ever assembled in the United States. This same building housed America's first true museum, though you might never know that by visiting today. 
Charles Wilson Peale's first job was a saddle maker. It was an important job in the 1770s because horses were the main mode of transportation. So you could say it was sort of like being a mechanic today. It was that essential to people. Charles was good at the making part of things, as he would prove to be with just about anything he tried. But when it came to the business side, that proved troublesome. And before long, he was dabbling in other pursuits. It turned out that he had a knack for painting, especially portraits. He studied the works of other, better painters in order to learn, and soon became good enough that some patrons paid for him to travel to Europe, and for two years he focused on learning the finer points of painting with some really great teachers. By the time he returned to America, the country was tipping towards war with England, and this would ultimately result in America's independence. And after George Washington was made commander-in-chief inside the walls of that red brick building we mentioned earlier, Charles Wilson Peale would join the army to do his part as well. Now, he had actually met George Washington before, because back in 1772, George's wife Martha hired the painter to paint a portrait of her husband. She probably wanted to remember him when he was young and still had all of his own teeth. Not that he smiled for the portrait. Everyone usually looked super serious in these paintings. Maybe it was because it took so much concentration to hold still for so long. Maybe it was just boring. Or maybe George was just trying to look tough. Anyway, throughout the war, Peel traveled with his paints and supplies. That way, when the army wasn't dodging cannonballs, freezing their feet off, ignoring their growling empty stomachs, or marching miles at a time, he could paint tough, frowny-faced portraits of the many people that he met. Most of these early paintings are these traditional, staring straight ahead and looking not very thrilled to be here type of portraits. These paid the bills because many wealthy people wanted a good, overly serious portrait of themselves. And he was among the best. But he also liked to have fun with his paint and canvas. Years after the war, he would make a life-size painting of his sons. In this work, the two boys were heading up a staircase, but have turned around to look back as if to greet the viewer. It is incredibly realistic, and the frame of the painting actually even looks like a real doorway. It was so realistic, in fact, that one of Peel's sons recalled a time when George Washington himself was walking by the portrait. And upon looking up and seeing the painted faces in the fake doorway, he stopped and tipped his cap to the boys before heading on. He must have thought they were the actual boys, and he must have been pretty embarrassed the next time he saw it and realized his mistake when the boys still had not moved. But even while painting these disorienting paintings, he kept painting the portraits of people that he met. So in the end, he wound up with a lot of them, and many of them were quite famous. And since this was a time when you had no other way to see images because, you know, there were no cameras, no televisions, no iPhones, no computer screens, and limited ability to reproduce images on paper, well, his collection was really special. It was so special that people were willing to pay to see it. And this gave him an idea. I should charge people to see these. Brilliant, eh? The funds raised by admission cost would let him house the collection in a nice space and also allow him to acquire other things. You see, he wasn't just interested in paintings. He was incredibly interested in the natural world and all of the creatures from the past and present. He learned taxidermy so he could display animals. He collected specimens of soil and stone and plants and animals, including that troublesome little prairie dog that Lewis and Clark had caught. He also learned a new system of cataloging the natural world called the Linnaean system, which is how he displayed his growing collection. 
He approached lots of people for help finding a public space for his museum, including Thomas Jefferson, and in 1802, he officially opened the museum, known as Peel's Philadelphia Museum. It was on the second floor of the red brick building that we now call Independence Hall. At the time, it was called the Pennsylvania State House, but Americans changed the name in honor of the momentous events that occurred within the walls. But it's not often that people talk about the museum. Just a year before the museum opened in the red brick building, he got some most unusual news. One of Peel's friends knew just the kind of information that would get Peel's heart fluttering like a pair of hummingbird wings. Dude, 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 bones, bones, dude. But not just any bones. Really old mastodon bones had been uncovered in the town of Newburgh, New York. Now these weren't the first mastodon bones found in America. Native Americans had been encountering them all over the continent because centuries ago, well, the place was literally crawling with a gigantic distant relative of the elephant. And as these giants slowly died, their bones were buried over with the sands of time until something uncovered them. Like in 1739, when a French soldier practically stumbled on some giant bones in a place now known as Big Bone Lick, Kentucky. This place was a salt lick, which attracted all sorts of living creatures. And cleverly, it would eventually be named after the really big bones found there. The Frenchmen's discovery were carried back to France, where they wound up on display in the Museum of Natural History in Paris. But America had no mastodon bones on public display at least not any assembled in an upright skeleton, as you would see them displayed in museums today. In fact, no one anywhere had collected and displayed a mastodon in this way. If Peel could get it out of the ground safely and figure out a way to put it together, it would be the crown jewel in his new museum. So he headed to the New York town on the Hudson River, hired 35 people to help him get the 10,000-year-old monster out of the ground, and he started digging. Of course, when you dig a hole, it has a tendency to fill up with stuff. Water, mostly. And water makes mud, and that makes it really difficult to extract an ancient skeleton. So, rather than fight with knee-deep muddy water, which was constantly hampering their efforts to get the mastodon bones out of the ground, Peel put his brain to the problem. He designed a giant wheel operated by a crank. The wheel carried dozens of buckets from down in the watery hole to high above, supported by a giant wooden tripod. While at the bottom of the wheel, bucket after bucket would fill with muddy water. As the belt they were attached to continued to turn, the buckets were raised high into the air until they reached the top of the wheel. Once there, the buckets turned to head back down, and the water they carried was dumped into a chute, which was sent far away where it would not refill the hole and create more mud. That, in and of itself, was clever enough to attract a crowd. But once giant bones really started piling up, then people came from miles around. By the time it was done, the whole project cost Peel over $2,000, which in 1801 was a fortune. He carefully packed up the bones and headed back to Philadelphia to begin the painstaking process of assembling them in an upright fashion, as if the animal were still alive, you know, just missing its skin and guts and muscle and all the other internal organs. Such a display had only been done once before, just a few years prior, a giant sloth had been displayed this way in Spain, but that was the first of its kind. Since this was the first reassembled mastodon, it's not like he could read a book or ask anyone how to put it together. He just had to figure out what went where and how to make it stay. It's like the most difficult, most expensive puzzle that you could possibly imagine. 
But he was up to the task, and once it was together, people lined up to pay their 50 cents to see the only assembled mastodon in the world, right above the room where the Declaration of Independence was signed. There's a famous self-portrait that Peel created called The Artist and His Museum, but unlike his boring, serious-faced portraits of other people, he gave himself the credit he deserved. The painting shows Peel, dressed in black velvet, pulling back a magnificent red curtain, and beyond that, you can see the second floor of Independence Hall, just as it looked in 1822. Cases of scientific specimens, taxidermied animals, and dozens of portraits bordering the ceiling. Over his left shoulder, still partially hidden by the folds of the curtain, the viewer is teased with a glimpse of the mastodon. When Peel died, his sons kept the museum going for a while, but much of his collection was eventually sold. As you might recall from the last episode, P.T. Barnum bought most of it. The mastodon bones, however, are now in the collection of the Maryland Historical Society, which is appropriate because that is where Peel was born. All of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see that I'm no good without you? Take my arms, I want to lose them. Take my lips, I'll never use them. Your goodbye left me with eyes that cry. And I know that I am no good without you. You took a part that Alright everybody, thank you for listening. Again, my name is Mick Sullivan and this has been The Past and the Curious. I have some Patreon thank yous to dole out with much gratitude. You should uh, consider supporting us. We are happy to do this, uh, but it helps a whole lot at the end of the day. Uh, Oh, Caitlin, thank you very much. Barbara, thank you very much. And a special shout out to Riley! Thank you, Riley. Riley, 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 Riley. Thanks, dude. Also, I'm supposed to write a Patreon song in gratitude to Megan, or maybe on behalf of Megan to someone, but I don't know what to write. Will you tell me, tell me, tell me what to write, who to write it to, the only thing I know about you 
is your name is Megan and I think you might be a doctor but that's all I know so why don't you if you want it let me know and uh, I'll make it way better than that for everyone else thank you all for suffering through that and uh, I hope to talk to you very very soon Uh, we're actually going to do a short episode or a special episode not a short episode it'll be full length um, with our friends from Tumble excellent podcast for kids and families and anyone with a brain Uh, so look for that soon that'll actually be out probably within like three weeks or so Uh, it'll be half a new story from us and half something from Tumble which you may have heard if you listen to Tumble Um, and then uh, more goodies for the year leave us a review and uh, you know be nice to somebody I mean everybody thanks 